Good morning. morning. Y'all excited? Second Sunday on giving. Wow, that was so reserved. (laughs) You couldn't even fake it well. Oh, man. Well, I hate to, you know, ruin it for you, but next week we'll also be giving. It's not my fault. Paul just talked about giving for like three chapters in this one book. So we have to go through all of it and make sense of it. So it's going to be very interesting, I think, today. Um, So I hope you came prepared to think, because we're going to find one of those things in the Bible that's a little difficult to interpret, and could be a little strange if you don't think about it clearly, and maybe I can even dispel some misnomers about giving, and how we think and talk about it, especially in relation to the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and part of 9. We're also going to be in Matthew chapter 6, so be prepared to go to both locations, and Wow, okay, there we go. So, I lost my spot, but I'll get back. Um, I'm sure I was talking about something important. (laughs) That really did, it got me. All right, so we're in 2 Corinthians. Let me give you the scenario. So, we are dealing with Paul's, okay, let me back up now. I just, it's one of those days, it is. I'm going to just start over, how about that? Giving. Who's excited? <laughs> Not the, yeah. Oh, man, that was, that was perfect. Okay, so when we talk about giving, in all seriousness, there's this, uh, and I'm not, to, not even to be funny, it's just real. You ever go to a concert, a Christian concert in particular, and you get to the middle part of the concert, it's almost time for intermission, and everybody knows what's about to happen at that concert, right? What's about to happen? This is when they're passing the basket, or a lot of times it's, you know, it's a sponsor the child sort of scenario. And, uh, you know, people start to get up and go to the bathroom when they see it coming. And because we're just, oh, we don't want to talk about money. Well, I came here to be entertained, not to be drained um, of my pocketbook. And then we go to church and, you know, we don't want to hear the preacher talking about giving. And I think there's two reasons that uh, we hate this topic so much, and I'm including myself in this conversation. And, and one of them is good, one of them is bad. The first reason is because this is most likely one of our most precious idols, and we don't want to mention it. We don't want to have to question whether or not this is an idol for me, because I'd rather keep doing things the way I'm doing, and I don't want that to be challenged. The other reason I think we don't like this topic is because from a preacher's perspective, this is one of those easy guilt trip messages. Oh man, I can get anybody with this one. I can throw out some, if you love Jesus, you'll give to this. In fact, you go to something and you hear this spiel for giving, there's always this, you know, if you love Jesus, not only would you be a giving person, but you'd give to this specific thing that I'm talking about tonight. Because if you don't give to this, you're a terrible Christian. In fact, you might even be some, you know, unregenerate scum of the earth if you don't give to Have you ever been somewhere where you felt like that's what was going on? Because of that, I'm always scared to talk about giving. I'm not going to lie. I dread the topic. And I think about, oh, I'm going to preach about giving Sunday. The church is going to fall apart. You know, I just get, I get depressed and nervous and sad. And actually, the topic today is the exact opposite of that feeling. Paul's talking about the encouragement and the joy, the delight of this topic of giving. And so we're going to try to counteract that idea and make sense of what's going on with Paul and why he's arguing it 
the way he's arguing. And in fact, if we look at it with the wrong lens, especially if you're thinking about all those televangelists that promise, if you just give that $100 seed money to my ministry, God will bless you. And you, you, you hear that stuff and you know, okay, this is just absurd. This is insane. This is a con artist. If you interpret Paul from that lens, it sounds like he could be a little manipulative in this text. And so I want to make sure we paint this picture clearly so that you see that's not what the Apostle Paul is doing. So to make sense of that, before we dive in, we're going to pick up in verse 16. Let's just remind ourselves what's going on, historically speaking, with the Apostle Paul and this particular offering that he's talking about. So here's the scenario. In the Jerusalem church, they're experiencing high levels of persecution, and it's Christians being persecuted by Jews. At this stage in the development of Christianity, Rome basically doesn't care about Christianity because it doesn't even know there's a thing called Christianity. There's just a particular type of Jew that the other Jews don't like. That's how Rome saw the early Christians. It's just a, a branch of Judaism, and enter, like they even bring it to the law, to the, the judge, and he's like, this has to do with your law. I, I don't care. This is not my thing. Pushes it off. Doesn't even see them as a separate entity. So all of the persecution going on in the early church, this first century, first half of the first century, is all Jews persecuting Christians, particularly Jewish Christians. So it's non-believing Jews persecuting believing Jews, and that means by and large 80-90%, maybe 95% of all persecution is happening in Jerusalem, not in the rest of the world. Now they see things. Paul's going through a lot of experiences and turmoils. He had some persecution in Ephesus, if you remember the scenario with the idols, and they riot. There's some persecution scattered, but the systematic, continual, oppressive persecution of Christians is happening in the Jerusalem church. So Paul has an idea. We could say it's an inspired idea. He says he was moved in the spirit, the way Luke words it in Acts 19. He, he resolved in his spirit to collect an offering from the Gentile churches to take to alleviate the suffering that was going on among those Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Now, his goal was really to bring those two groups together. We detailed last week how there was this constant battle, constant friction between Jewish and Gentile Christians over all sorts of things. Paul, almost in every letter, is having to explain whether or not you can eat pork, whether or not you can do that with a clear conscience, whether or not you should do that with your brother. There's always this tension between the churches, what they can do, what they can't do together, what you shouldn't do if you're with your brother, because he's trying to bring them back into unity to give them peace. And he imagines that in this scenario, if he can get the Gentile churches to collect an offering, then he can take that offering back to Jerusalem, then he can help bridge that gap. There'll be this, this idea of unity, this idea of you know, gratitude, of thankfulness, overflowing to the glory of Christ. And that's what he'll explicitly say that in the next chapter, next week. But that's his goal. That's what he's hoping will happen. So in Acts 19, he, he makes that decision, and then he goes on this final missionary journey, and some some Bibles might have a picture of Paul's third missionary journey. Some Bibles might even call this Paul's offering collection journey because that's really what's happening. He leaves Ephesus. He, he cycles up through Macedonia and then to Corinth. And then he goes back to Jerusalem on his way to Rome. So if you follow the math there, that's like a 2,000-mile detour 
Um, he's going to go to Rome by going almost to Rome, back to Jerusalem, and then back to Rome because it's important for him that he gets this offering back. So where we are in 2 Corinthians is Paul has already gone to Macedonia, and that's where he's at when he writes the book, and he's telling them about the offering. When he gets to Corinth, he writes Romans, and he tells the Romans about the offering, and that's why he's not coming straight across, because they know Paul's supposed to be coming any day now, and he says, no, I've got to go to Jerusalem first. It's going to be a couple of years, actually, before he ever makes it to Rome, and so we see the different stages of this offering. Now, he mentioned it last week in chapter 8, and he's giving this encouragement that you should give generously. He wants the church at Corinth to make a good example, and he even says, your present abundance should lead to a big offering. He was really happy with the offering that the churches in Macedonia gave, but we described that offering might have been great in comparison to their wealth, not necessarily great in general. It's like for the widow to give the mite, she gave more, Jesus said, than these people throwing in pocketfuls of money because she was giving a great percentage, we could say, of her income. And so he's kind of egging on the, the Corinthians here saying, you've got a lot, you're wealthy, and I want to see what you give. I want to see that you're going to show the glory of God through your gift. And he makes this statement and compares it to the people in Macedonia. He says, this is what they did. There were two steps to their giving. First, they gave themselves to the Lord, and then they gave to this offering. Now, those steps are important because you could give to the offering without giving to the Lord, and you could have false motives. We'll get into that in a few minutes when we compare this passage with, with what Jesus has to say. But really what Paul's getting at there is when they gave themselves to the Lord, how much of themselves did they give to the Lord? 100%. And that's the issue. The excellent giver is what we called that. He said, you should excel in this giving, in this exercise. Everything I have is the Lord's. I'm merely a steward of it. Everything, no matter how much you think you worked for what you have, it's only by God's grace you got it at all. It's only by God's grace you have the opportunities that you have. It's only by God's grace that you've got anything. It's all His, and as a believer, it's all been purchased by Him. And you have fully yielded control of that, supposedly, in conversion. By submitting to Christ as Lord, you're saying all of this is yours. And once that's done, then it's easy. If the Lord leads me to give to such and such, I give. It's his money to tell me what to do with. He tells us different things. He told the rich young ruler, sell it all. Give it to the poor. And God has the prerogative to do that. He can tell any of us to do that. He can tell us to give specific things to specific people. God moves in mysterious ways and he gives us specific commandments, but all of it is his and he has the prerogative about how we give it. So with that in mind, let's see where Paul picks up. So we're in chapter 8, verse 16. So he's going through all of this about being an excellent giver, and now he's going to talk a little bit more about how he's collecting the offering. But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. You may remember Titus is the one who's been acting like the messenger for Paul, he was really nervous about his relationship. We talked about that for several weeks with the Corinthian church. He sent Titus to take the severe letter, and it was Titus who brought that back with the good news. And now he's sending Titus back, not only to bring this letter, but to collect 
the offering or to prepare them for the collection. It says, For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. So we've got two guys together here. They're coming. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace. Now, act of grace is a reference to the offering. That's how he's describing this offering that he's collecting. So they've got these brothers that have been appointed by the churches to be the ones taking the offering. I think it's interesting. Paul's not doing it himself. He's doing it through these other brothers, and they are going to come and collect and ultimately deliver this act of grace that's being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our good will. So see, two things going on. So when he collects this offering and gives this offering, he's expecting two things. So if you look in your outline, let's fill in a few blanks. So the Apostle Paul expected two outcomes from this offering. We see both of, their, both of them there in verse 19. One, the glory of the Lord himself. What's going to happen? God is going to be glorified. Now you can think of that in many ways. It's going to be significant for us as we move forward. God is going to be glorified through the offering. Now let's think about what it means to glorify God. Now without getting too nerdy, we, we have to be clear though about what we're talking about. To glorify God is to give God or to show God's value and worth. Now think about it. God can't get more glory. Does that make sense? How much glory does he have? All of it. He can't get more glory today than he had yesterday. That's not what we do when we glorify God. He's not got a bucket he's carrying around and it's empty and he needs you to to put some glory in his bucket so he can feel good about himself. That's not what we mean when we say we glorify God. So what is happening when we glorify God specifically in giving? How does giving this offering glorify God? How does Paul think God gets glory if he's as glorious as glorious can be and he doesn't need any glory? How does this glorify God? In what sense? It reveals his worth. So when we give, we're acknowledging the value of God. We're saying he's more valuable than my money. I treasure him more than I treasure this income. I treasure him more than I treasure this thing I'm sacrificing. It shows the value of God. Now, it also shows that value of God to others, which causes them to glorify God because they see in us God being glorified, and it causes them to glorify God. This is in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before others. Do you know this verse? So that they will see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So people see what you do, and God gets the glory. So not only did he get glorified in you doing it, he gets glorified in you doing it and it being seen. So it's a double glory. It reveals the majesty of God. It shows his glory to the world. So that's the first goal. So he's expecting two outcomes from his offering. First, for God to be glorified, but then see how it ends in verse 19, but also to show our good will. Now, it'll be a lot clearer as the, the, the verses go on, but he's talking about his good, the goodwill being shown to Jerusalem church. So the Jerusalem church will learn and experience the goodwill of the Gentile churches. This is what Paul's getting at. So he wants the Jerusalem church 
to experience the goodwill of the Gentile churches. So he's got a dual motive here. He wants to glorify God with this offering, but he also wants to make a statement to the church in Jerusalem. So remember, Paul resolved in his spirit to do this. So do you think Paul is doing this correctly? Well, yeah, he's the Apostle Paul. This is, is a good example for us. So he's doing this so that they will feel it and see it and know it. Verse 20, let's finish this paragraph, and then we'll fill in the next blanks. So we take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. So that is having these extra people involved and the churches all know what's going on. He's got a, basically an accountability system. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, now this is significant, but also in the sight of man. So he wants to do this right before the Lord. And we could stop there and say, well, that's enough. Just do it right before the Lord. Does it matter if it looks right before anyone else? Well, for the Apostle Paul, yes. Yes, it does. It's not just doing it right before the Lord. You have to do it honorable in the sight of man. And with them, we are sending our brother with whom we've also, with, we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of this great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as our brother, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So we give proof before the churches of your love and our boasting about you to these men. So if you think about that whole paragraph is about Paul making a presentation to others. He's recommending Titus to them, but he's also saying ultimately their giving is going to make a statement to those brothers, also to the Macedonian churches, and then finally to the church at Jerusalem. So in other words, Paul's saying here that the giving is designed to be seen by others so that they know it's happening. All right, so let's fill in the next blanks. Paul demonstrates that it is proper first to give in the sight of God, but also to give in the sight of man. Now, if you know the Sermon on the Mount well, you may be saying, whoa, 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 whoa. That seems to contradict what Jesus said. So trick question, is Matthew more important or Paul, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, more important? I thought it was a trick question. What's the answer? They're both inspired by God. Jesus didn't write anything in Matthew. Holy Spirit wrote that. Holy Spirit wrote this. So don't have a contradiction here. But let's make sense of what's going on. I do want you to see this. So turn to Matthew chapter 6. We're in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And it almost seems like it's the opposite of what we just said from Paul. So Matthew 6.1 starts off by saying, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Well, an example, thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So what's the main idea of this passage? Should people see your giving? Well, 
it seems like the answer is no. No, they should not see your giving, but what's Paul saying back in 2 Corinthians? He's making a big deal that everybody see this giving because he wants God to get glorified through this offering because it's public, because it's seen, because it's obvious to all. That's the point. It needs to be seen. Now, there's no contradiction here. It just feels like there is because the Sermon on the Mount is making a specific point. I quoted chapter 5, verse 16, just a moment ago. It said, let your light shine before others in such a way that they see your what? Good works. So according to Jesus, you should practice good works in front of people specifically to be seen by them. You should. He commands you to do that. You should practice your good works before people so that they are seen. And what happens when they see you practice those good works? God gets the glory. But you've been in church long enough to know that you can practice good works to be seen by others, where your goal is not for God to get the glory, but for what to happen? For you to get the glory. There's a big difference there. And so we have in chapter 5 all these examples of practicing your righteousness in ways that should be seen. And then in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus gives examples of practicing your righteousness in ways that should not be seen. So it's not about whether or not people should see your good works. They should. But they should never see your good works because you're trying to make much of how great you are. But do you want the world to see how much you think God is worth? Absolutely. That's the point. Jesus wants you to let your light be seen. He wants you to cause the world to give him glory. So next blank in your outline. Jesus taught that our giving must be in secret to remind us that we do not give to make much of ourselves. That's not why we give. That's why he's going through this whole thing. In fact, the next example in Matthew 6 is prayer. Don't pray standing on the street corners with these big, long, lofty prayers to make much of yourself. Go pray in your prayer closet. And then Jesus gives them example prayer that's not an individual prayer. All the pronouns in that prayer are, are our Father who art in heaven. It's a public prayer. It's a way to pray with people. So he tells you, go pray in private, and then here's how you pray in public. It's not telling you you can't do this publicly. In fact, every recorded prayer in Scripture is public. It's happening in a group. Scripture's not disobeying itself. It's we're over-literally reading what Jesus is getting at here. What's the point? How should you pray? Or how should you not pray? Don't pray like a hypocrite. Don't pray like a Pharisee. Don't give like a hypocrite. Don't give like a Pharisee. He doesn't mean don't give or give in a way that no one ever knows. In fact, sometimes the Bible makes it clear that your giving has to be or must be seen. So think about the early parts of Acts. You remember when uh, Ananias and Sapphira died? Remember the scenario there? They were giving, and the sad part is, is they, they sold their property and gave a lot of money to the church, and God killed them for it, because what did they do wrong? Do you remember? They lied about it. They were giving to make much of themselves. But right before that, there's a reason that story started. There's a perfect example of this right there in Acts. Right before they sold their property and gave some of the money, a guy named Barnabas sold his property, gave all the money, 
And he laid it at the apostles' feet publicly in the sight of all. Is he punished for this? No. It gave God glory. It was a glorious moment. He wasn't disobeying Matthew chapter 6. He was honoring God. The one disobeying Matthew chapter 6 was Ananias and Sapphira. They gave, clearly, to make much of their own glory rather than to make much of the glory of God. So these passages are not intention. They're not talking about the same thing. Do not give to make much of yourself. Rather, give to make much of God. So let's go back to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. Back to chapter 8. We'll pick up in verse 9 now. I'm sorry. We finished chapter 8. We'll pick up in chapter 9 now. It says, Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints. And when he says ministry of the saints, he's talking about that offering. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying, Achaia, that is Greece, the area where Corinth is, they've been ready since last year. So how's he using their giving in Macedonia as an encouragement, a provocation maybe? Hey, the church is in Greece. They've been collecting this offering for a while. They're going to give a big offering. He's encouraging the church in Macedonia to participate well. It says, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. So what's Paul's goal here? Why does he want this giving to be known? To stir up the church. To provoke one another to love and good deeds. Hebrews 10, 24. So they're being stirred up. But I am sending the brothers, that is ahead of time, so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. So imagine what Paul's nervous about here. He told the churches in Macedonia that the churches in Greece, they're going to give a good offering. They've been, they've been collecting this money. They've been praying about this. They've been working on this for a while. And so he sends Titus ahead of time to remind them of that because what happens if he gets there and they hadn't actually collected anything yet? What's Paul going to do? Be embarrassed for the second time of his relationship with the Corinthian church. So he sends them ahead. Otherwise, if some of the Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have been promised, a gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. You ever feel like the giving at church feels more like an exaction? All right. We, we feel like this at a lot of different things. And maybe sometimes it's not the request at fault. It's the idolatries of our heart. And Paul is challenging them there so that when he shows up and gives, gets them to give, that they're giving something that's willing. Now, you know what's going to be in the next paragraph we'll deal with next week is the idea of being a cheerful giver, and that's where we're headed. But today I want to hone in on this giving for the sake of the body of Christ. So let's fill in our last blank. Paul's teaching on giving shows that we must give to make much of God for the sake of the body of Christ. So if you think about it, how many times have you ever had a conversation with another church member about how much they give to the church? And if someone asked you about that, how would you feel? Like, none of your business. <laughs> Leave me alone. And I'm not saying you have to go home and have that specific conversation, but we don't talk about that kind of stuff. 
But the Apostle Paul is spending a lot of time talking about that kind of stuff. That's exactly what he's talking about. He's wanting to make it public. So here's how I want to conclude this message this morning. Uh, Jacob asked me a really great question last week, and I was like, you know, I really need to end the sermon that way. So we're not collecting an offering to send two saints in Jerusalem. So what's the application here for us? So what's the give? What's, what's the need? What's the catch? I'll, I'll give you three things, actually, um, about this. So number one, we have a church budget that needs consistent, stable giving in order for us to survive. The ups and downs of church life are fascinating. We'll have a week that's great, or a month that's great, and we have a month that's terrible, and we're like, we're going to have to close up shop. And then the next month is great, and it's this emotional roller coaster. And one need we have at Church of the Square is forgiving to be consistent, just the same, every single time. And so for me, what I've done is I've signed up for the online giving, and it just gives the exact same amount every time, without fail, it will just repeat on cycle. My income is consistent, so my giving can be consistent, and maybe that's something you can do, or maybe you don't give to the church at all, and this is your opportunity to repent of that and start giving to the church family that you're a part of. Paul told us in 1 Corinthians, and it's been a while since we were in that book, but that just like in the Old Testament system, how their tithes contributed to the function of the temple and how that whole system worked in the same way, Paul says, it works in the New Testament, i.e. we give for the functioning of the body, for the upkeep of the budget. And so consistent giving is a very big need in our church. But let me give you two others. Assuming you are giving consistently and faithfully to our church to support that, let me give you two other things that have come up recently that I think we can and should participate in. So you already know we, every school year, we do free lunch um, once a month for the BSU, the Baptist Student Union, on the campus. It's a good outreach tool. They have a new director this year, and it, it rotates um, pretty regularly, but we have a new director this year, and he has an idea that he wants to work on, and I really like this idea. He's very big into, instead of just providing a place for people to hang out, and that is a large part of what the BSU does, he wants to take, take up another level worth of evangelistic outreach. And so they get a lot of people that come for free lunch, and his goal is to create a lot of scenarios where himself and his leadership team can take those people and go have coffee with them and, and create an environment where they're always following up and meeting away from the building somewhere so that their presence around campus is greater, their presence in the coffee shop next to campus is greater, and so that they can have more direct evangelism going on through that system. The problem is most of the college students can't afford to buy coffee you know, twice a week, every week, because I don't know if you remember being in college, but it's often a very poor time of life. And so what they've requested is that churches like our church give them gift cards, maybe like a, a Visa gift card. It's got $15 on it, just something small so that they can hand these out to their leadership team and just make these coffee dates and these different experiences where they get an opportunity to share the gospel, and we can help facilitate that. And if we do, think about it. Will God get glory through that? It'll be clear that the churches care. The churches care about this ministry. That'll bolster all the leadership, all of the, 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 the gospel witnessers within the BSU will feel uplifted because the body of Christ is participating together, and it will actually foster ministry itself. All of this will glorify God, and it's being done in the sight of man, not in the Matthew 6 way, but in the 
2 Corinthians 8 way. It's honorable before men. Then there's another opportunity. So we have on the Mississippi Gulf Coast right now five new church starts that um, are affiliated with the Baptist Convention that are um, in that early stage of, of growth and development. Some of them haven't launched yet. They're still developing core teams, or some have launched in the last year and are experiencing that whirlwind of are we going to make it, aren't we going to make it? And one thing I would love to be able to help facilitate is encouragement to the families, to the planters that are doing this. And what I would like to do, and specifically this is from our church, I'd like to have five people um, purchase some sort of gift card for each of the five families represented so that we could send just a note of encouragement and send them out on a date, a meal, some sort of gift card to some place. Some, maybe you've got a favorite restaurant and you want to bless a couple um, who's in that early stage just with an opportunity to, to get away from the house and go eat a meal together. That's an encouragement. If you want to do either of those two things, I want you to see me after service and I'll give you the specifics about how to participate as the Lord wills. But above all, we should all be faithfully giving to our church. This glorifies God in that we are giving over of our income for the sake of ministry, and it stirs encouragement among the church, among the body, especially among the elders and staff, when we know that the funds are there and our church cares about the ministry that we're doing. All of this will give glory to our God.